If you would grab your Bible or access the Word of God on your device, let's turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Okay, if you're at Psalm 96, would you please stand with me as a way to honor the reading of God's Word? This morning, Psalm 96. We'll read all the way through, and then we'll get started. Psalm 96. O sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before Yahweh. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning aware of our inadequacies, aware of our failures, aware of our sins, Um, Some, no doubt, are weighed down by these things. And so, Lord, we come to you knowing that we can confess our sins to you, that you hear us, that you've provided a way to take away our sins, to cover them, to throw them away so that they are no longer um, in between us. You offer full fellowship with you by the blood of your Son and through the power of your Holy Spirit. This morning, God, we want to praise you. We want to learn from you. We want to hear what you would say. We want to take something away so that we might this week put these things into practice. Lord, we we thank you for the opportunities that we've had um, this week to, in various groups, meet with Dick and Dee Lassie. Lord, to hear from them, to enjoy them, to hear from their experiences in Africa. Lord, we thank you yesterday for learning from Alan about um, the beliefs the behaviors of Islam. Lord, we thank you for the interactions that we were able to have. And Lord, we pray that we would be better equipped to engage with Muslims in our offices, in our neighborhoods, at school, um, in restaurants, um, and just in random, supposedly random, meetings. And God, uh, prepare us to love people and to introduce them to the God that loves them. So this morning, Father, be with us. And then um, as we go... From here to the Sunday School Hour and, and talk with Dick and Dee, Lord, may we just be encouraged to follow you and to love you and to dedicate ourselves to you anew. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, 
his parents gave 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, he wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. A story often associated with Borden says that in response, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. Even though he was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look like just one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had lots of money, though he did. One of them wrote, He came to college far ahead spiritually than the rest of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of his settled purpose and consecration before God. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. That entry said simply, Say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. Borden's first disappointment at Yale came when the university president spoke in a convocation about the student's need of having a fixed purpose. After that speech, Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. Surveying the Yale faculty and much of the student body, Borden lamented what he saw as the end result of an empty humanistic philosophy. And so he decided to do something about it. He started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. It was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of Scripture. Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's small morning group, prayer group gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, listen to this, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden made it his habit to seek out the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, one of his friends said, we organized Bible study groups and divided up the class of 300 or more, each man interested taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. The names were gone over one by one, and the question asked, who will take this person? When it came to someone thought to be a hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put him down for me. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven. To try to rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of, Bill's Borden's, one of Bill Borden's friends wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kanzu people in China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, he never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known. He put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him. And I always felt he was of the stuff martyrs were made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire by age 21, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the 
pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as the president of the Honor Society Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduating from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. He then wrote in his Bible, No Retreats. Bill Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he suddenly contracted spinal meningitis within a month. 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. That's what his biographer Mary Taylor wrote in the introduction to his book. Here's the question. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. No regrets. So in the back of his Bible, they found these phrases written in over the years. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. What a perspective. (laughs) This is a phenomenal uh, example to us and shows us the dedication that one man had to reach Muslim people that he never made it to. He never made it. Uh, But he inspired many, many others to go in his stead. Muslim peoples make up about 1.5 billion people on the planet and they are growing rapidly. Um, This is um, not so much a political or cultural problem um, as it is a spiritual opportunity. Um, God is not surprised or shocked uh, about the population of Muslims around the world. God is sovereign. And one thing that is distinct about the so-called great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is that they're making claims based on history. We can observe and test and compare their truth claims. Uh, This is good, and a helpful thing for us because what we have to compare with is history. We are not making merely philosophical statements. We're not appealing to something in the ether um, and trying to wrap our minds around it. We're talking about historical happenings or we're talking about things that were purported to be historical. These are what we run into when we talk about Islam. If you were not here yesterday... Um, Alan Schleeman gave us some fantastic examples of some of these things um, in the religion of Islam. So I really, again, would um, encourage you to go ahead and and listen to that on the internet. The Bible that you hold in your hand or that you access on your device um, is a historical document. Um, It is not merely uh, a set of fairy tales. It's not a set of fables put together. It is the history of of the world, the universe, purporting to be from God, it claims to make a uh, it claims to make a case uh, for God in the Bible being the one who created the heavens and the earth. The God of the Bible is the one who controls history. He's the one who will wrap things up at the end of time. And so we want to look at God's word this morning as we consider kind of. Keep it in the back of your mind as we consider Islam. I want to take us on a little bit of a survey through the Bible. So get your thumbs uh, ready. You millennials have stronger thumbs, so you're ready to go. The rest of you can keep up with us. Genesis chapter 3. 
By the way, I'm probably not going to give you time to turn to all of these, but if you want to try it and keep up, you can. <laughs> okay? Genesis chapter 3, um, we are introduced right at the beginning of the story to a big problem. Uh, there's no good story without conflict, and conflict is introduced almost right away in Genesis chapter 3 when man and woman sin. Uh, sin separates the Creator God and His creation, and so God steps in, He curses the serpent, He curses the ground. Uh, woman will, women will now have increased pain in childbirth. They will desire to uh, go against their husbands. Their husbands will go against them. Marital conflict is introduced. A conflict between the man and the ground that will produce his food is introduced. And we have big, big problems because now those who were created to live and breathe and walk with God are now destined to die. And yet God provides. And as we go through the story of Genesis, we get to Genesis chapter 12, and there you see a man named Abram, an old man, with an old wife, past the time of childbearing. And yet God chooses this man um, to become the first Jew, to become the one who would be the progenitor of the Jewish race. As one person put it, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Um, and if you think about that, he, had, he made the Jews out of a Gentile. He made the Jewish people out of a moon-worshipping couple from Babylon. In uh, Genesis chapter 12, he tells Abram to go to a far country. I'll show you where to go, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Abram is blessed to be a blessing. That is not something foreign to us. We are blessed to be a blessing. You have shown that in the way that you've given to the Maz Luthers. God has blessed us um, with jobs, many of us, with um, prosperity here in America. And it was so encouraging to see this church step up to the plate and provide for the Maz Luthers. We, we are blessed to be a blessing. We are not blessed to be hoarders. Genesis 12.3 God tells Abraham, Abram, I will bless those who bless you. And him, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, and here's the promise, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The very beginning, God promises Abram not just a small ethnic group that will be blessed and will be superior to the rest. He promises at the beginning... Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a universal blessing. It is meant to be a blessing that is planted in Abraham and sprouts and blesses the whole world. So check it out. In my, my Bible, I'm on page 14 of 1,800 pages. So there's a long way to go, and this happens right at the very beginning. How are the families of the earth going to be blessed through Abraham? How is this going to work? Which... It immediately poses a problem. He's 75. His wife is 65. They can't have kids. They haven't had any kids. Not a good, not a good start. It's not, the prospects are not looking good. And yet as we read through the story, God continues to provide and provide as he has promised. In chapter 15, God covenants with Abraham. He shows him how he will provide. He promises him further that his descendants will be as plentiful as the stars in the night sky, as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. 
He promised to make him the father of a multitude of nations and that kings shall come from you. This wandering Bedouin living in a tent has the promise of kings and kingdoms. Further, as we go through Genesis chapter 26, uh, God doesn't give up once Abraham has a few kids. He continues to expand that promise to include Isaac. Isaac, promised son of Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you. I will give you land. I will give you descendants. I will keep my promise. In chapter 27 and onward, Jacob, the, the grandson of Abraham, receives further promises. The promise is reconfirmed to him. And as we read this story, by the way, none of these guys are particularly great guys. I mean, Abraham's willing to sell his wife off twice to other people that find her attractive. I mean, that's not a good score. <laughs> you don't get good grades for that. Isaac um, is not a, a, a terribly good guy either. He plays favorites with his twin sons against the will of God. Jacob is a liar and a cheat. Um, so we got, a, you know, we got great stock that we're, that we're coming from here. As we move through the scripture, we see Joseph uh, come into play. And Joseph goes down to Egypt. And it looks like the promise is done. There's a famine in the land. There's no food. The, one of the sons is gone. And as we see God provide again and again, he reunites the family of Abraham, now 70 strong, in a foreign land where they will prosper and grow. And on his deathbed, Jacob, renamed Israel, blesses his son Judah. And we find out through that blessing that the king that comes from Judah's line would rule not only his, his brothers, but would rule the peoples. The promise is of the peoples, the, the, the nations. We get worldwide rulership promised. In the book of Exodus, God saves his chosen people, the Israelites, glorifies himself in the eyes of the nations. He uh, disqualifies the Egyptian gods from godhood. They, they are powerless to stop him. In the book of Numbers, God uses a pagan prophet named Balaam to show that God's king will come someday as a star. He will have a scepter. In Joshua, the Israelites conquer Canaan in part to show God's glory in judgment and his salvation among the nations. The peoples around Israel can join. If they declare their allegiance to Yahweh, they can join these people and partake in the promises made to Abraham. Later on in First and Second Samuel, God promises David an everlasting kingdom. He promises him a son who will sit on the throne, ruling and reigning with perfect righteousness. We don't have to read much further to find out that Solomon is not that son. We see glimpses as he builds the temple and the presence of God comes amongst his people. But then, of course, we see Solomon deviate from uh, the Lord his God and worships other gods. All throughout the Psalms, we read one of them this morning, Psalm 96. All throughout the Psalms and the prophets, we see songs written, prophecies given about a coming king and a kingdom that is not merely consist of Jews, but will include those coming from the corners of the earth to join in the blessing that has been given to the followers of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Now watch this. I am one of them. And so are you. Let's just praise the Lord right arm. Okay. Um, I, think, I think three of you did that. That was great. Um, but did you notice? How many of you are Jewish? 
Two people in this room have raised their hands that they're ethnically Jewish. How in the world can we claim to be sons of Father Abraham? By faith. By the promise that was made that through Abraham, who would be blessed? The nations, the families of the world, the peoples. We see the uh, promise worked out in the New Testament in Matthew. Notice, who comes with gifts for the newborn king? The Jews? His fellow people? Magi from the east. Pagans, possibly star worshippers. Possibly from Babylon, Persia. Maybe they followed after Daniel. Whatever the case is, there's pagans bringing wealth, gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the baby king. This is just a a picture of what's going to happen in the future. We see pictures of that in the prophets, that the kings of the nations would bring their treasures to Zion. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus gives a mission that would apply to those present and to those who would follow in their footsteps. He said, all authority, which includes how much authority? All of it in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's quite an audacious claim. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the people that you like. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what's the promise? Come on, I am with you. I'm with you always. How long? To the end of the age. In Luke, Jesus said that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Then in Acts, Luke, well, Jesus said, Luke wrote it down, that Jesus told his disciples that they'd be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The mission is clear. John reports that God so loved the Israelites that he gave his only... God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. We learn through the letters of Paul and Peter and James and John that the gospel of Jesus was being spread throughout the known world. This work has been passed down from generation to generation of Christians. It has come down to us. We have been given the torch that was passed to Peter and the disciples from Jesus. This story, this history, is not just one of a local tribal deity and a small band of people in the middle of the wilderness. This story is about one great God for all nations. In the end, the story of the Bible is of a great God gathering worshipers. From Note this many times in the book of Revelation. From every corner of the earth, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And one day we will cry out with a loud voice surrounding the throne. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Indeed, as the prophet Habakkuk said 2,600 years ago. See, this is a historical claim. This isn't, this isn't um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is a few thousand miles ago on this planet. Habakkuk said, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. That is what will happen, and it is happening as we speak. 
That's the story. Condensed. <laughs> That's the story. I left something out. A cross, an empty tomb, the center, the climax of the story. And Jesus, the God-man, goes to the cross for the very people who have sinned against him because they cannot bear their own sin. They cannot pay for it. He bears it willingly for them. The only one undeserving of the wrath of God takes all of the wrath of God so that those who put their faith in him might have eternal life. Given the gift of the Holy Spirit, they can now in this life begin to live like they were meant to live. That's you and that's me if you believe in Jesus. That's the promise given to us. Jesus rose from the grave. There is no more fear of death. Jesus beat it, and he shows us by his, his defeating death that one day we too will defeat death. Do you realize in those few stories in the Gospels where someone is dead and Jesus raises them, that he's promising, he's showing us what will one day happen to us? Do you remember that story? Jesus is walking into a town, and out of the town is coming the funeral. Can you imagine that? Jesus walks up to the casket and looks inside and tells the person to get up. That is really insensitive. <laughs> Have you been to a funeral recently? What if a guy walked up to the pallbearers as they're carrying the casket and says, open that thing up. I'm going to raise that person to life. Get out of here. Who invited this guy? The only problem is the guy sits up in the casket. That's terrifying. That is just a little taste of what's going to happen when Jesus unleashes his resurrection power and all the dead are raised. Now, this leads me to Islam. It has been, um, it's been something that I've noticed um, in our culture, in our churches, um, in America, that we often default to some form of fear of Muslims. That manifests itself in names that we will call Muslims, in ways that we will refer to them, in ways that we will generalize. And I think that the first thing that needs to be said, whether or not we, we realize that in our own lives, is that there is no need to fear. And there's nothing to be afraid of. We've seen this in Isaiah. Just a quick, quick uh, recap of just a few chapters in Isaiah that we've gone through. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. 41.13, I, Yahweh, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Isaiah 41, the next verse, I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Fear not. Isaiah 43.1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. 43.5, fear not, for I am with you. 44.8, fear not, nor be afraid. In case you're wondering, what fear meant, it also, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Isaiah 51, 7. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Throughout the book of Isaiah, the antidote to fear is the presence of God. What better understanding of the presence of God do we have than looking at what the Holy Spirit represents? The Holy Spirit represents power. He is power, and he's given to us. Therefore, if we have God residing within us, God is with us, and we have no need to fear. There's no reason to be afraid. 
Further, in Psalm 118, David says this, Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. I can think of a lot of things that man can do to you. Uh, We see in the news a lot of things that ISIS can do to people. And that, at, at first glance, is terrifying. This is a bold claim. David also says in Psalm 56, verses 8 through 11, listen to the intimacy he has with God. You have kept count of my tossings. That sounds exhausting. (laughs) Someone standing by your bed? One, two, three. This God who knows you so intimately, he knows how many times you turned over in the night. You have put my tears in your bottle. Can you, I mean, can you literally imagine doing that? How close would you have to get to somebody to get their tears in a bottle? Uncomfortably close. (laughs) Real close. Are they not in your book? Keeping track. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in Yahweh whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? In the New Testament, we find out that we don't fear, we love. Love casts out fear. In fact, Jesus tells us we even need to love our enemies. And so as I was thinking about this, um, something that Alan said yesterday is is very true, um, and it just speaks to how we need to be careful with how we use language, though. Um, So I want to make a claim here. Bear with me. In one sense... Some Muslims certainly are our enemies. Some of them hate us. Some of them want to hurt us. Some of them want to kill us. And so especially as Christians who live in the United States of America, many of this room are citizens of the United States of America, we certainly in some respect do see that many Muslims are our enemies. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Of course, right? You love me, I love you, we're, you know, it's good, okay? I totally butchered that. We love each other. (laughs) It's easy to love somebody who loves you back. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is calling us to a radical love that is, is not just reciprocal for those who love us, it's a proactive love towards those who don't love us. However, in a much deeper sense, Muslims are certainly not our enemies. So... I think it's okay to use language in this way. We do it, we do it all the time. But I think that when we look at um, our world with a critical eye and we look at the Bible and, and take it at face value, um, the Bible tells us to love our enemies, which means to love those who are against us, who are opposed to us, who hate us, who don't like us. We're to love them. However, in another sense, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. There's two things we can do here. We can say that the Bible writers, the Bible authors contradict each other, or maybe because they didn't know each other or they didn't live around the same time or they were in different regions, that they kind of had a little bit different take on Christianity or what Jesus taught. Or 
we can believe in what God has said and that both of these things are true. So Jesus says to love our enemies, which means we have enemies in order to love them. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells the, the church in Asia, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why do you put on armor? Because it looks good, right? No. Why? To fight, to go to war. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says that ultimately, we're not fighting against each other, flesh and blood. Our battle is against the spiritual powers of darkness, the unseen cosmic powers. The reason this is the case is because we do not want to extinguish the life of potential allies. So th- this picture of warfare is very interesting. We're out on the battlefield and we're ignoring some of the soldiers on the other side that want to kill us and fighting their generals. We're not trying to slay all the pawns out there. We want to actually turn the pawns to around to our side. In fact, Paul says this at the end of the armor passage. Go down to verse uh, 19. He's asking, he's he's given a prayer request. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. We learned this yesterday. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents uh, a country, a ruler, someone in authority. Paul saw himself as an ambassador and that way that anyone he met His battle was not with the flesh and blood. His battle was with those that were keeping those flesh and blood opponents in darkness. So that when he opened his mouth to boldly speak the gospel, that they would be transformed from darkness to light, dead to living, new life, new birth. And so we got to consider this. Um, When we think about Muslims or Islam, or we use those terms, oftentimes we are thinking in mostly political or cultural terms, which is not wrong. We're, we're, we're political people. We can't, we can't avoid that. God has set up um, governments um, to rule and to give order. But we cannot end there. We can't just stop there. We must think as Christians first. And so when we think about Muslims, when we think about Islam, we must think of these, the, the people who need Jesus. So when we approach something about which we may disagree, like the refugee crisis that's currently happening and the so-called travel ban, um, we have to remember that our government is primarily tasked with protecting us. And so we can debate and disagree about policies regarding how many refugees to bring into a country that we live in. Do Do you understand there's Christians in lots of other countries that are also talking about these issues? And they are within their borders, and we're within ours, and, and we talk about these things as political animals. However, something that we share with all those Christians in other borders is that we are not primarily concerned 
with the safety and well-being of our physical bodies, we are primarily concerned with the well-being of our eternal souls and when we get new bodies. So we can disagree about policy. We can disagree about how to implement how many people are allowed to come into our, our country. However, Christian churches are not the government. Our primary concern is the spiritual and eternal safety of the souls of lost and blind human beings of all colors, languages, nationalities, and ethnicities. We are not Americans first. We are Christians, followers of Jesus, who, by the way, was a Jew, who lived under a Roman Empire. So, when we read the prayers of Paul, we read the prayer requests of Paul in the New Testament, he, he, unless I'm mistaken, he never asks specifically for safety. His prayer requests are not, hey church and Colossi, please pray that I'll be safe. His prayers are about the safety of people's eternal souls. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And later on he says this, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul's biggest concern at his trial is not to defend himself and save his life. It's so that he can proclaim the gospel so that more people will hear it. That's radical. That is much different than most of my concerns. Most of my concerns about my well-being. Paul shows us that our concerns primarily ought to be for the well-being of those who don't have the assurance that one day they will receive the crown of righteousness. Paul had no doubt about that. So Paul could risk it all. So let's watch the news. Let's read the news. Let's respond to current events on social media with hope, faith, love. Let's be on our guard against merely impulsive and uninformed comments that are so easy to blurt out of our mouths or type on a keyboard or a phone. Let's exercise our faith in winsome ways that shows that we do actually love other people and love our enemies rather than castigating them and calling them names. Let's be really careful to train ourselves and our families, to discipline ourselves and our families, to approach Islam and Muslims not first as a political issue, Let's train ourselves to think that we're not Democrats or Republicans or independents or conservatives or liberals. First, we are citizens of heaven. Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one with people that cannot legally enter our country. So we have much more in common with those saved by the blood of Jesus, okay, than, um, that, that, are have, that are a different ethnicity, different nationality, than those that we share an ethnicity or a nationality with that don't know Jesus. Ronnie White, in 2013, 
was living in Benghazi, Libya. He was from Austin, Texas. What was he doing there? Ronnie and his family moved to Benghazi to teach high school chemistry and to be a blessing to the Libyan people. Ronnie's greatest desire was for peace and prosperity in Libya and for the people of Libya to have the joy of knowing God through Christ. I know that many of your vacations now are planned for Libya. That's where you're hoping to go. But Ronnie took his wife and little baby boy, Hosea, one morning in 2013 while on a morning jog, a truck pulled up with a bunch of terrorists in it and they gunned down Ronnie White in cold blood. He left behind his wife, Anita, and their young son, Hosea. He was murdered. What a waste. He could have been here building up a retirement fund so that he could help his child, Hosea, go to college and have a comfortable life. How dare he risk it all and leave his wife widowed and his son without a father? How could he put his wife and son in harm's way and move them to Libya? Ronnie's wife, Anita, widowed and left to raise Hosea by herself, wrote this just one week after her husband's murder. To his attackers, I love you and forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus came not only to take us to paradise when we die, but also bring peace and healing on this earth. Ronnie, she's writing to terrorists. Ronnie loved you because God loves you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. See, some of us need to go. I I, I prayed this morning that God might stir in somebody's heart here the desire, maybe it's me. And of course, you couldn't leave in, in middle age. We've never seen anyone like that, like Fred and Cinda Tribble. So I'm not just talking to the young people, by the way, in the room. Maybe you need to go, like William Borden, like Ronnie White, like Dick and D. Lassie, like Matt Plotz. I didn't check with my wife, but maybe I need to go. Maybe we need to go. Why not? Why not consider it? Parents and grandparents of young people, let me speak to you for a minute. I know I only have little ones. I'm not a grandparent, as you may have noticed. But what are your goals for your children and grandchildren? What's your desire for their lives? I hope it's not. I just want you to be happy. It's so empty. Let's tell them, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything. (laughs) To the glory of God. Let's teach them that risk is right. Let's teach them wisdom and not foolishness. But Paul tells us that our wisdom often looks like foolishness to the world. Let's teach them that billions are dying without even hearing the name Jesus. Let's teach them that our life is just a mist, a vapor. Let's teach them the great words of the missionary C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. No one, no one is going to put your kid's grades or report card on their tombstone. 
It's not going to be there. Get good grades, kids. It's just not going to go on your tombstone. C.T. Stutt said this, Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Dads, what if a young man wants to marry your daughter and go with her to a dangerous place and maybe someday have your grandchildren there? Adoniram Judson, one of the great pioneer missionaries in the 19th century, wrote this to the father of Anne, the woman he wanted to marry. This is a letter. Letter to Mr. Hasseltine asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. Okay, good specific plan. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Anne's father said yes. Anne married Adoniram Judson, Judson on February 5th, 1812. They left for India and ultimately Burma that year. She never returned dying of disease in 1826, a victim of the long, dreadful months of disease, death, stress, and loneliness that had been her station for 21 months. Their third child died six months later. When Adoniram Judson himself died many years later, they left 100 churches in Burma, 8,000 Burmese believers. And today, Burma, or you may hear it, Myanmar in the news, has the third largest number of Baptists worldwide. Did you know that? Dare we say because a dad said yes to let his daughter go for something that was more important than whether or not he could see his grandkids? What do we prioritize? Please, parents and grandparents and all of us, fight against the instinct to save your children from possible suffering and death and instead urge them to follow Jesus wherever it takes them. For their sake, for your sake, For the sake of the nation and for God's sake, literally, please do not discourage them from missions, pastoral ministry, or other ministry-related vocations, especially if it's primarily for reasons of income. Goodness gracious, we have obtained an inheritance. Our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We will one day be shown the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's not going to matter if you made $400,000 in your 60 years or not. We have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. So let's teach our kids and our grandkids that there is no richer, no safer place, no more secure place than in the center of God's will. Woo! How can we participate in this, because this is all sounds really good, and then tomorrow it's, whew, it's gone. <laughs> Man, that guy talked for a long time. Well, coming up very soon, May 27th to June 25th, 
we will be um, taking our church through 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world once again. Um, I know that many of you have, have tried to start that <laughs> in years past, and it has fallen by the wayside. We provide um, booklets for you um, so that you can follow and pray for specific Muslim people groups around the world, some of whom have no missionaries reaching out to them. You can get to know our missionaries. You can email them, call them, send them a card. Holy smokes, you can follow them on Facebook. It's not hard. You can give sacrificially via faith promise to fund missions here at Village. You can cross the street. You can go to a mosque. You can cross a border. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that it was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.